We're going to be in Psalm chapter 119, verses 97 through 104. I'll pray briefly before we read the word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would be exalted this morning in our hearts, in our minds. Uh, We pray, Lord God, that you would be exalted in our uh, time corporately uh, as we uh, sit uh, beneath your word. We pray that you would be um, uh, just uh, uh, with us and before us. We pray that you would be exalted in the word that uh, Pastor Adam teaches. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series today during Advent through uh, this idea of the Word became flesh. Uh, The Word, the Bible, and the Word, Jesus Christ, and Jesus was the walking, talking Word of God. And this mini-series, we are looking at uh, the definition of the Bible. What really is the Word of God? Uh, How do we interact with the Word of God? And we also are hoping that this mini-series would be intensely practical Uh, So during each one of these sermons, we're looking at specific tools that we can use, uh, skills, references, and things like that, in order to help us interpret the Bible accurately. So last week, we were looking at major Bible themes, and this week, we are looking at something called the discourse, and I'll be explaining that here in just a minute. But our passage here this morning comes from Proverbs 24. You can join me there if you'd like. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 13. And Proverbs 24 says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. That's Proverbs 24, verse 13. And it begins by by saying, My son. And I love that it starts with, My son. It's an important thing in the book of Proverbs, an older person talking to a younger person. Uh, some books of the Bible are written to individual people. This particular book of the, of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, is actually written to, let's say, a group of people. And it's written to young people. It's, it's good for all of us, but it's specifically written to that young adult. Uh, and so if you are uh, in junior high or high school, or if you are about that level of spiritual maturity, then this book is for you. Um, I met a pastor this week who told me that he reads a proverb every day, and he's been doing that for 30 years, and he was talking about the impact that that has had in his life. 
Uh, my dad reads a chapter of Proverbs every day. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and so whatever the corresponding date is, he reads that chapter, and I watched him doing that. All growing up, I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd look over the ledge of the stairs, and Dad was downstairs in the living room reading his chapter of the day in Proverbs. Sometimes he'd make one of us read it in the car as he was taking us to school. And so this is a book for everyone, and it can be a very important part of our regular lives, which means that all of us are like the sun in the book of Proverbs. All of us are like the sun. We all need to learn wisdom. And so being wise means that we are teachable, and that's a very important thing. This is in the wisdom section, the wisdom genre of the Bible, several books in that wisdom genre. And if we want to grow in our wisdom, if we want to become wise, it's not something that just, just, that just happens. You don't just get old and suddenly become wise. That is not the case. You may learn a lot about life and so on, but we're talking about biblical wisdom. Wisdom being uh, the Bible in real life, the Bible with shoes on or with hiking boots on or whatever. That, so that's what wisdom is. And if we're going to grow in wisdom, we have got to have a teachable heart. We've got to see ourselves like the sun in the book of Proverbs. And there are two keys to a teachable heart. And we're going to talk about those here this morning. Two keys to a teachable heart. And the first one is to listen. And the second one is to live under When we're talking about listening, what I mean is that we're really focusing on what God is saying here in the Bible without jumping to conclusions. One of the hardest things in teaching people to read the Bible and teaching people to interpret the Bible is how to set aside the preconceived ideas about what God is saying uh, and to actually listen to what is being said in a particular text of Scripture. So listening is a very important aspect of teachability. And the other aspect of teachability, of a teachable heart, is to live under, to be submissive, to see ourselves like the sun, needing wisdom, uh, not being defensive. That's also, I think, what it means to live under. Uh, If we find ourselves being defensive, our heart starts getting hot and so on, that's defensiveness. Somebody's bringing some kind of a correction or a criticism, and we find ourselves feeling very defensive. It's very important for us to, to do the KMS when we find ourselves uh, feeling defensive. You know, KMS stands for keep mouth shut. (laughs) Keep mouth shut, and that's a really important thing. And unfortunately, uh, uh, for those of you who know me well, I I am learning KMS. I am (laughs) in the process of learning that. I'm aware that, that that's one of my issues. And so if I know that there's a meeting that might be contentious or something like that. It's, a, it's thinking ahead of time, KMS, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and let's get those de- that defensiveness down so that I can hear wisdom uh, from others in those situations, and that is particularly true in regard to the Word of God. So two keys to a teachable heart, to listen and to live under. I'd like to talk about each one of these in depth. Let's start with listening. Uh, And we'll come back to the text here in a minute, but I told you that in the middle of each one of these uh, sermons, we're going to give you a tool, a very practical tool. So it's a little bit different than how we normally do sermons here. Uh, It's going to feel a little bit like a class for the next five or ten minutes, Uh, and we're going to talk about a discourse. Throughout the Bible, individual sentences are usually too short to capture what the author is trying to say. And I mean that lowercase a and uppercase a. God is communicating to us in his Bible, but he's communicating through human authors. And these authors, this author, 
is trying to communicate something and usually does that in more than a sentence. Now, it's funny that we're looking at the Proverbs this morning because the Proverbs is actually the one exception to the rule. A proverb is a very short saying that communicates everything that it means to communicate. And a lot of the book of Proverbs doesn't have much to do with the verse before or after it. Now, sometimes it's in a section of sayings or things like this. So there is an arrangement. It's not completely random. But a proverb stands pretty well on its own, sometimes just a sentence or two. But usually throughout the Bible and as human beings, we communicate by stringing sentences together. We do this when we write emails. Uh, We do this when we have conversations. We have friends over and somebody says, how did you meet? Uh, Well, that might be, you know, how did you and your wife meet? Well, that's a story. I string a bunch of sentences together. What do you think about God? What are you learning right now about God? Or what was it like when you were on that trip? Or whatever it may be, uh, what you're looking for in a relationship is a bunch of sentences that go together. And there's something about stringing all those sentences together that if you take them all together, you can get the sense of the heart of the person there. It's really important for us not to just take one sentence and run with that, uh, but to see it in its context, to see it in its discourse. When I'm dealing with just one sentence in the Bible, I'm tempted to make assumptions about it and insert a lot of my own ideas. And those ideas may or may not match what God intends to communicate in that particular text. Sometimes people will read a verse of the Bible and it'll have a word in it like love or mercy or whatever it may be. And we'll think, well, God is talking about mercy here. And then we we go on mercy. But actually, if we read that in its context, if we read it in the context of a discourse, the sentences that go together, this coherent collection of sentences, then we can see that we're not actually talking about mercy here. There's another thing that is being communicated. So it's very important for us to pay attention to what the author is actually communicating. I'll be more likely to understand what God wants me to hear. I'll be more, more likely to grow in my understanding of wisdom if I can get used to seeing the sentence of the Bible in the context of their discourses. And I'll give you an example, and some of you have heard this example before, but if I were to tell you something like a sentence like, John is my old friend, well, what do I mean by that? John is my old friend, what do I mean? Now, you might make assumptions, but you've got about a one out of three chance of being accurate in your interpretation. Old might mean advanced in age. John is my old friend, like he's my elderly friend type of thing. Uh, Old might also mean my previous friend. He's not my friend anymore. He's my old friend. It might mean he's my longtime friend. We've been through lots of different situations together. He's He's my old friend. Well, now, which interpretation is accurate? And again, you've got a one in three chance. If that's the only sentence that you've got, you've got a one in three chance of interpreting me accurately. And you can probably raise that percentage uh, because some of those uh, usages of the word old are not as common. Like, for example, my previous friend, uh, somebody would probably word that different. So you can kind of monkey around with it a little bit and increase your chances. But you're you're not very close to 100% unless you have another sentence. You've got to have another sentence. So a discourse is a coherent collection of sentences. So if I were to say something like, John is my old friend. We met when we were kids, and uh, we've experienced all kinds of difficulties together. Well, now you know what old means. He's my longtime friend. Now you've raised to 100% your interpretation accuracy. 
And it's that second sentence that actually controls what the first one means. And that's very important when we're looking at Scripture. There's meaning in the text. There's something that God is trying to communicate. Uh, it's, it's very important in relationships that we listen to each other. It's even more important when God is communicating to us that we listen to him. So we've got to have more sentences. More often than not, we've got to have more sentences in order to know what is being communicated in a text of Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. You remember that sentence? If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, now, what do you think he meant by that? That's kind of an outrageous thing. That was the Apostle Paul talking to a whole church at Corinth, and he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, <laughs> what exactly was he communicating? And if we read more sentences, we find out that the people there at Corinth had their favorite sort of rock star preachers. Paul was one of them. Apollos was another of them. Another of them and they were all following their little sects. And so Paul was saying, no, 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 no. We all have different roles and we are one church. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because then you'd be, you know, my little fans and groupies. And I don't want groupies. It's about all of us being together. And so if we read, the, read more sentences, we find out what is being communicated there. Now, in different parts of the Bible, discourses look different. Uh, for example, in the Bible's history or story books, so there's Old Testament historical narrative, New Testament historical narrative. Those are stories. And each story is its own discourse. And so a story might go for a chapter or two chapters. It's a coherent collection of sentences that makes up a story. Uh, books like Genesis and Exodus uh, contain a lot of historical narrative. In the New Testament, we call them the epistles, which would be the letters from the apostles. And these epistles uh, have a bunch of discourses. You might have two, three, four discourses in each chapter. Now, the paragraph divisions weren't original. So if you're looking at one translation and another, they might put the paragraph divisions in different places. But usually, more often than not, the translators do a pretty good job identifying a discourse by the paragraph. But sometimes you might read a paragraph and the next paragraph after it, and you might decide, you know, those two kind of go together. Or you might decide, gosh, why did they put the the paragraph marker there to be really good if it was a sentence before. So what we're doing there is we're paying attention to the text and we're trying to see what God is trying to communicate. And once we identify a, a particular discourse, the beginning and the end of that discourse, then the important thing for us is to summarize it. That has to do with comprehension. And I recommend that that be done with a journal of some kind. So if you're looking for something to do in your own daily devotions, we're giving you ideas as you start the new year, a new way to do your devotion. So today's idea is that you might pull out a, a journal. You might go buy a nice journal or something like that and decide you're going to read through a book of the Bible and begin by identifying the different discourses. Just mark them in your Bible or you can make a printout off of your computer or something like that and mark where the discourses are. So each discourse is a coherent collection of sentences where something coherent is being communicated there. Maybe a paragraph, maybe a story. And then what you're going to look at is try to summarize as best you can, what God is communicating in that coherent collection of sentences. And just write that in your journal. Spending some time doing that is important. In a good way, I'm going to give you four tips here, and then we'll get back to the proper sermon. Four tips for writing a good summary. Four tips for writing a good summary, and one of those is to pray. Because this is God communicating to us. This isn't an academic exercise. This isn't an English class. It's not a literature class or something like that. This is trying to hear what God is trying to communicate. 
So when we come to the Bible, the very first thing we need to do is to ask God to help us understand uh, what is being said. You heard Brian pray just a, little, just a few minutes ago. He was praying for the reading and the preaching of God's word. We're about to hear from God. And uh, so we want soft hearts to that. We want comprehension and we need the Holy Spirit. So the first tip for writing a good summary is to pray. And the second tip is to read and reread. That's an important thing for comprehension is that when we're looking at a, at a discourse or a paragraph or a story, is that we read it several times. Very hard to understand the Bible. Uh, very hard to understand probably 99% of the Bible unless we reread, reread, reread. Now, some people like to read through the entire Bible in a year. That may be your personality, and that's a wonderful thing. I don't want commu- to uh, discourage you from doing that, but you just need to be aware of the fact that you're going to be chugging down a lot of the Bible every day. It's going to be kind of one of those chug, chug, chug as you go through the Bible, and it's going to be really hard to slow down and focus on individual discourses. So it's probably good to do that several times in your life, but it's also good to spend, okay, instead of reading the whole Bible in a year, I'm going to read the book of Romans in a year, and I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to read this slowly. I'm going to pay attention to the discourses and what God is communicating in each section. So the first tip is to pray. Second tip is to read and reread. Third tip is to circle keywords and phrases. It's a really important thing. And I know there's an inductive method that includes all different kinds of colors and underlines and all that other kind of stuff. And that's not really my personality. If you're an engineer, then that is uh, maybe the type of thing you like to do is pick it apart. And so you can get as complicated as you want with your circling and underlining and all of that. And that's really good. But no matter what personality we have, it's important for us to see the main thing that's being emphasized in a text. What is the primary emphasis of this text? So what we're going to do is identify where those key words and those key phrases are that's going to help us write our summary. And then the fourth, thing, the fourth thing we do is make sure that our summary is 15 words or less with no metaphors. No metaphors. Translate all your metaphors. Okay, 15 words or less just means that you've made a good summary. You don't need a summary that's so long that you have to summarize your summary. Then you haven't written a very good summary, right, if you have to summarize your summary. So we're looking at about 10 or 15 words or less. And, uh, and just pop those in your journal as you go through the different discourses of Scripture. And it's a very good technique. It's just a tool, and it's very simple, something you can do probably beginning right around junior high. And you can take this all the way through the rest of your life, is take a section of the Bible, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Make sure that you understand where the coherent collections exist, those different sections exist, maybe two, three, four sentences together if it's an epistle or a whole chapter or two together if it's a story type of book of the Bible. Identify where those discourses are and then summarize it, 15 words or less, after a lot of prayer and identifying the key words and phrases. So that's one tool, and there are many tools like that for listening to the Bible. And this is one of the problems we have, is that if we've been in church for a few weeks, then we begin to make some assumptions about what God is like. And uh, so then when we're reading Scripture, we bring our assumptions to the text very important part of wisdom is to listen, to set aside our preconceived ideas, to set aside our assumptions. I'm not saying that we set aside our theology. Of course, we bring a lot of that to each text because that's also going to regulate what we're hearing. But we set aside our assumptions that, oh, yeah, 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 I know what you're saying. That's a rude way to communicate with somebody. We need to listen. We do this with coworkers. We do this with family members. We need to make sure. Now, do I totally understand the nuance of what you're saying? Because you used a word there that I wasn't totally sure what you were saying. That's just good communication skills. 
Is this a living and active text? Is God really communicating in this text? And if he is, his thoughts are higher than ours. It may take some work for us to understand what he's communicating. So we pay close attention. We set our assumptions aside. And this little approach here to using discourses, identifying keywords and writing summaries is a good way to listen to God. So I said that there are two parts to teachability. So let's get back a little bit to our sermon here and talk about living under. Two keys to teachability. One has to do with listening, like actually paying attention. And the other has to do with living under. Living under. Uh, Living under is an expression of humility. Uh, That's me saying I know that I need wisdom and I know that I need to be living under authority in order to understand wisdom, the authority of the Bible and the authority of older, wiser Christian people. And I think the book of Proverbs shows us uh, how those things combine. Um, uh, We need older people in our lives, people who already understand certain aspects of wisdom and then teach it to us. And I don't mean that we just have wise people in our lives, that we know wise people and that we sometimes talk to them. But I mean to learn how to live under wise people at various points in our lives. This has to do with authority and submission to authority. Our hearts are usually hard toward wisdom. We're just not naturally inclined to understand or like wisdom. So it's very important to let wise people speak very frankly into our lives. Um, for example, when I was 19, 20 years old, there was, a, there was a man named Mr. Moore. He was the director of the Bible school that I was attended. And uh, he mentored me for a year and a half. And our relationship was very much of a, he'd call me at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. He'd say, get the car. And I'd get the car and I'd drive him all over. Uh, uh, he had ministry all through Germany. And so I basically carried his bags for a year and a half all over the country. And uh, when I started with Mr. Moore, I wasn't walking with the Lord. Uh, you know, in fact, I'm just going to disclose this to you. I was talking to a friend yesterday uh, who went to Multnomah School of Bible. And my dad is actually cousins with uh, uh, Joe Aldrich, who's been the president uh, of, uh, of Multnomah School of Bible. And Joe Aldrich came into my house, like the Joe Aldrich came into my house uh, when I was living in Portland all by myself, and I was about 19 years old. And I'm still embarrassed of, uh, that this happened, but I wasn't walking with the Lord at the time. And I had this, this big picture of Marilyn Monroe on my wall, and uh, it was not a uh, modest uh, picture of Marilyn Monroe <laughs> And I just think, oh my goodness, I invited this, you know, the, the, <laughs> the president of Multnomah Bible College into my house and boom, there's Marilyn Monroe. So that was kind of what my life was. I was not walking with the Lord and uh, I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't going to church. I had been raised in a Christian home and so I had, a regu- I had basically a theistic worldview, but I'm not sure that I was saved and I definitely wasn't walking with the Lord. So now all of a sudden I'm around this guy, Mr. Moore, and I saw something in him. He really loved the Lord. He's very principled. And I knew that my life was a disaster. And so I just decided for that period of time, I was just going to do whatever that dude asked me to do. And I was going to pester him uh, to get as close to him as I could. And uh, so for about a year and a half, a little, little more than that, Mr. Moore, just whether he liked it or not, 
uh, became my mentor and had a huge impact in my life. I absolutely would not uh, be a pastor or a decent father or husband unless Mr. Moore had gotten a hold of my life. And he died right before I met Libby. And uh, just a few months before I met Libby. And um, I was just down the street from him at the time, and it was just very oddly similar to, uh, uh, to what happened to our church here a, few, a couple of months ago here with Wayne passing away. Just a, a major figure in the Christian community. And, uh, and when he passed away, it was, it was crazy because then I met Libby. And I didn't have Mr. Moore to ask what I should do. I had to make this decision all by myself, and I hadn't done that for the last year and a half. I had grown to be very reliant on his input, but, um, but as I look back, I think that his influence in my life changed my heart so that I would be attracted to the right kind of girl, you know? Uh, and, uh, and I think Mr. Moore would have really liked Libby. Um, but that's the kind of impact that he had in my life. About 12 years ago, there's another man that many of you have, uh, have met. His name's Gary Hunter. He's one of the missionaries that our church supports. Um, and he reached out to me when I was a young pastor. And uh, Gary is gifted and also a little bit annoying uh, for, uh, in the area of questions. Uh, he asks a, a thousand hard questions. The joke with Gary is that you've never heard him make a sentence that has a period at the end of it. Um, I mean, even a waitress will come to the table and ask what he wants, and he'll say, well, what's good? <laughs> what do you like? I mean, it's just crazy. Um, now, Gary has a gift at offending me, and, uh, and what I have learned is that um, that's my problem. Uh, Gary asks me the most unbelievably personal, hard questions, uh, and, uh, and he... Uh, has forced me to look at my heart in ways that have not always been real fun. And maybe a third of the time that I drive away from a meeting with Gary, I'm kind of upset. I'm not mad at him. I'm just kind of frustrated. Uh, but over the hours and days that follow, um, there's something inside that you can almost hear just kind of creaking into some kind of alignment with wisdom. And uh, Gary's influence in my life has, uh, has been crucial for me learning how to lead. Um, I'll give you another example. Uh, the district superintendent of our district, his name is Neil Brower, and I really like Neil. And he gave me advice a couple of days ago that also kind of frustrated me. And uh, I didn't think that he understood my question before he started to answer. And he just, boom, bazooka'd me with an answer that I didn't seem to match the, the question. And so I felt myself kind of, you know, my stomach was tightening, my heart rate was going up because I was feeling misunderstood. <laughs> and, um, and so I started to feel defensive. So I'm thinking KMS, KMS. And I don't know what he saw in terms of my response to him, but I had to thank him later that night. Uh, I, I found him and, and I had to thank him for being bold with me. Because uh, I probably was clearly not responding well to what he was saying, and he just kept going. And, um, and I had to thank him. I, I went up to him, and I was like, sorry, I lost it. We're good. Thank you, you know. Older, wiser people have a huge impact in our lives if they have the freedom to speak frankly to us. I would bet that about 75% of the most important things that I've learned in my life have come from older people 
who spoke frankly to me. Uh, It is possible to grow all by myself with a Bible. That is possible. It is possible to grow just with peers, just surrounded by my peers. That's kind of the typical small group as I find people that kind of look like me and, and, and so on. We're basically peers. And so it is possible to grow in those ways, but that's very slow growth. Um, in rea- it's really slow growth. God designed us to grow deep in him by living under wisdom. So just these first two words, my son, spending a lot of time here. These first two words, my son, tells us a lot about how God designed us to grow. And that is the specialty of the book of Proverbs. So let's look at this uh, here in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. It's just the very introduction to the book of Proverbs. It says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. This is hard stuff. It's hard stuff to understand because it's the Bible with tennis shoes on. It's wisdom, and we are not born wise. And we see this kind of thing all the way through the Bible. Jesus and the disciples, probably the best example of what it means to live under. Robert Coleman wrote a great book, one of the classics of the 20th century, The Master Plan of Evangelism. How many of you have read that? Uh Uh-oh, okay, so that's a good one for us to read. Good, good book for us to read, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Uh, maybe not the best title. Might be The Master Plan of Discipleship uh, is what that's about. And Coleman's first point is that the plan of Jesus for winning the world was to work with ordinary men who were teachable, honest, and willing to confess their need. That was the setup. That is the beginning of the church is God surrounding himself, Jesus surrounding himself with people who were teachable, honest, and willing to confess their need. We also see that in the relationship of Moses and Joshua. We see this in Barnabas mentoring Paul and then Paul mentoring Timothy. This is not just something for the super privileged in the in religious realms. God designed all of us to live under other people. Listen to this in Titus. This is the book of Titus. I'm going to read you about a paragraph here from Titus chapter 2. It says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You see, this is a church-wide plan that all of us ought to be living under those who are older in the faith. It's a basic purpose of the church is the older helping the younger to live the Bible. And that requires young people to have a teachable heart, to really listen and to put ourselves under. It means that we take the initiative to spend time with wise people. Uh, about 20 years ago, it was very popular in the church to design mentoring ministries, and the idea was that the mature people, that the mentors need to go after those who need to be mentored. And I think that's a good idea. The problem is that if you overemphasize that, you miss what usually happens in a mentoring relationship. And what is, I think, a little more healthy for a mentoring relationship, where you have somebody who's immature in the faith, realizing his immaturity and then finding someone who's wise and figuring out ways to spend time with that person. 
And so the whole setup of the relationship then becomes the one who is hungry asking the other, can you please feed me, instead of sort of pestering and going after. And we wonder why many of these ministries don't exist anymore, because when you put the onus on the mentor, then it, uh, then it makes the um, motivation for remaining in the relationship a little bit lower for the younger one who needs to be uh, growing. So some of you might think, well, nobody's ever mentored me and feeling sorry for yourself. Well, why don't you look around the room because there's a bunch of really quality people in this room. Look around the room, find one that's farther down the road than you are, and figure out how to get yourself in that person's life. That's a really important thing in growing in wisdom is that we take the initiative to grow. We take the initiative to say, I am messed up, and that person is less messed up than me, and so I need to spend time with that person. So how can I do that? Can I help that person with some chores, or is that person doing a certain kind of ministry, and I can come alongside that? Uh, How can we uh, carry the bags, so to speak, for the wise people that we need to be spending time with? And then you need to be braced for the fact that that person is going to say things that are hard to hear, and we need to listen. We need to listen. Because because, uh, wisdom is the Bible in real life. So this old man tells his son, let's just look at this passage again, Proverbs 24. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is like that to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, why does a father tell a son, eat this, you're going to like it? Have you ever said that as a parent? I don't know how many times I have said to a child, eat this. I promise you're going to like it. And I'm not just talking about vegetables. You know this, right? Sometimes you can't get a kid to eat a piece of cake or something because it looks funny and it doesn't look like cake I've had before. It's green, so therefore it's gross or it has some weird texture or something like this. We tell children to eat things that we know they're going to like if they would just taste it. And sometimes their emotions gets so hijacked through that process that even if they do eat it, they can't taste it because it's like, Wah! you know, and spit it out. It's like, it's a piece of cake. Like we're, This is pudding, you know. And wisdom is like that. All of us are sinners. We're spiritually underbaked and we're tangled up in our self-justifications. And a wise person comes along and observes our life a little bit and thinks, you know, this kid would be a lot happier if he would just understand such and such, make a couple of changes. And I could help this kid because I remember learning that lesson the hard way. But he's not going to like what I have to say because the solution is going to sound kind of weird at first. And that is a normal, regular dynamic of a mentoring relationship. A lot of discipleship is trying to help people see stuff that they don't really want to look at and trying to help people internalize things that they don't want to accept. And in the Proverbs, the wise father says, look, you like honey, right? We all like honey. Honey's great. Honey's awesome. You know what? Wisdom is like that. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. Try this. Try this. Let's say I have a coworker that drives me crazy, and so I go to a wise person in my life to find out how do I deal with this coworker. Now, what we want this wise person to do is commiserate with the fact that this other person is very irritating. And it would be even better if this person knows maybe some psychological diagnoses that we don't know so we can label this person with some kind of disorder. 
But what does a wise person usually do? What does a wise person usually do in that situation? Maybe God put this person in your life in order to give you an opportunity to display the love of Jesus Christ. That's not what I wanted to hear. A wise person might say, I wonder what's going on in your heart that makes you lose it so bad when you're around this person. Why does that person push your buttons so bad? A wise person might say, I wonder if God is sufficient enough to make you joyful even when you have to be around this person. Oh, that is a tough thing to think. See, the Bible in real life actually is a better way to live because the reason we're unwise is that there's all kinds of things that are tangled up in there that's creating unhappiness in my soul. But it is hard to hear wisdom. So the only people who grow in wisdom, and this is true, this is not an overstatement, this isn't just a preacher using hyperbole, the only people who grow in wisdom are people that are teachable and willing to listen to stuff That sounds weird at first. Psalm 119, verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You see, that is someone who has thought, okay, this is kind of weird, but I'll taste it. All right, I'll taste it. Oh, that's sweet. Some of the unhappiest people on earth are also the least teachable. You might have noticed this. Chronically unhappy, often connects with chronically unteachable. And there's an obvious correlation there, right? And if you try to bring correction or feedback or an alternate perspective, the defenses defenses go right up. You don't understand how I've been hurt or whatever like this. And that defensiveness keeps them in a stuck spot. But wisdom leads to a good life. Listen to our passage again and listen to the impact and effect of a wise life. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is like that to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, that passage did not say, if you would just become more wise, then everything will start going right in your life, and you won't have anything to complain about. That's not what it says. It says it's good for the soul and you'll have hope. You see, my soul is that inner part of us that is sometimes in turmoil as a result of not having wisdom. (laughs) That inner part of us that lacks wisdom. And as a result, there's no rest, there's no peace, there's no joy. And that's one of the biggest prayers that I have for my family and for for you. Um, As elders, we often pray that for you that you would have joy and peace. Wisdom has a huge impact in that inner part of us. doesn't fix all of our situations. It doesn't give us nothing to complain about. That was a double negative, but you know what I mean. So it's good for the soul. And second, you can have a future. Your hope will not be cut off. You see, we're talking about context or discourse. The verses before and after this talk about what a fool does because a fool doesn't listen to wisdom. A fool thinks that he pretty much knows how to live his life. And if you don't like it, you can stick it and that kind of a thing. 
And as a result, the, you see uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 20, the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. That's the person who won't really listen to wisdom. I might be theistic in my worldview. I might say, yeah, there's probably a guy named Jesus. I might pray from time to time when I get in a tough spot. I'm not wise. I'm not wise. And the Bible warns us over and over again that if we're not teachable, if we don't listen to the message of the Bible, if we haven't truly and deeply and regularly repented for our sins, put our trust in Jesus Christ, and gone through pursuing this process of slow sanctification and spiritual growth, if we don't go through that, then we have no future. And we're talking about eternity here. You might live another 10, 20 years, but a wise person understands that we've got 752 billion years and more. And this, this short period here is for something other uh, than what we often look for at first. So wisdom is so important that it's a heaven and hell issue. Wise people are at peace deep in the soul, and wise people have this beautiful hope of eternity with God. There will be a future. Your hope will not be cut off. And when we believe that, it brings a peace and a joy and a rest into our souls makes it possible for us to go into a lot of crazy life situations. Peter the Apostle is often picked on. You've probably heard this. He's often picked on because he said some of the stupidest things in, in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus corrects him. So he was famous for, you know, the get thee behind me statement where Jesus, he said something to Jesus that was so anti-theology that, uh, <laughs> that he, get, he got probably the most famous rebuke in the Bible. Uh, but, you know, I want to reinterpret Peter just a little bit and say I think one reason we know so much about Peter's spiritual growth is because he was incredibly receptive to Jesus' correction. He was available. He was teachable. You never hear Peter talk back to Christ. Oh, but Jesus, that's not what I meant. He never does that. Jesus says something just boom, and his face probably flushed. And he sat there for a second, probably going KMS, KMS, KMS. And he was like, you know what, that dude's, that dude's right. And he's incredibly self-disclosing about his failures later. But how, do we got, how do we get the book of Mark? How do we get you know, the gospel of Mark? Well, Mark was Peter's assistant. And the book of Mark is filled with the discipleship failure of Peter. Isn't that interesting? So I think if you were to meet Peter, as an older man, he was like, dude, I was a goof. I was a goof, and Jesus got a hold of me. I've noticed you doing some goofy stuff. Come here, let's talk about it. But hey, this is a real guy, and I feel like I can be around him. So I kind of like Peter. I think Peter is an interesting man. An interesting Bible study would be to look through First and Second Peter and connect what he says there as the apostle and the first real church leader until Paul came along a couple of decades later and grabbed the ball and took it into foreign places. But Peter was really the leader of the church for a long time and continued to lead the church there in Jerusalem. And so take little paragraphs of First and Second Peter and connect them to stuff that you see him learning in the Gospels. It's really interesting. He was a teachable man. He learned stuff. Jesus is telling parables. Peter is sitting there like taking notes. I don't know if he took notes, but, you know, he's sitting there like remembering and 
by paying attention, and we see him as a main character in some of the stories, and he's learning stuff, and he's like, boop, that's not right, and boop, that's not right. I can't do anything right. And Jesus is like, come on, you love me, right? Feed my sheep. Come on, and here we go. And he's learning stuff, and it's uncomfortable. Peter's often uncomfortable because that's what it means to learn wisdom. That's how a teachable heart responds to wisdom is you put yourself in a situation where you're going to hear wisdom. It's not going to be comfortable. We've got to do whatever we need to do in order to make ourselves receptive to that. And what we see in Peter's life is he learned from Jesus Christ to the point that he was able to teach many of us. He became a wise person because he was teachable. So the Bible is filled with wisdom. And our hearts are hard to wisdom. And yes, we can grow by ourselves. We can grow just with our peers. Uh, But that's slow growth. Uh, That's slow growth. And I think the book of Proverbs is showing us another way to interact with the sweetness of the word of God. And that is to first of all listen. Really focusing on what God's word is saying and learning the kind of tools and skills and surrounding myself with the kind of resources that I need to really pay attention to what God is saying in this text. And the other thing that has to do with teachability is to learn how to live under. All through the Bible, we see people in relationships that make deep spiritual growth possible, deep understanding of wisdom, so that we might say, with King David in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for giving us the Bible, and we thank you for putting us in a church. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us teachable and more teachable so that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, um, All of us struggle with defensiveness in different ways. And Lord, I pray that you would make us teachable and make us soft and help us to listen when wisdom is knocking on our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.